0: If you've, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, whether that's on a, a phone or a hard copy, you want to open up to Judges chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if you've got uh, one of the blue Bible initiative booklets, some of you are very faithful to bringing that booklet with you every week, and I've not ever even made reference to it during a sermon, but we're going to today. And so if you've got one of those, you want to open that up to page 19. We're going to look at a couple of the graphic things that are in there this morning. Um, where we've been thus far, we're, we're jumping into the book of Judges. That crosses over into another era of Old Testament history. And so what I want to do is just walk through. Maybe you haven't been with us over the last few months, or maybe you haven't been reading along. And uh, I want to be able to just catch everybody up. Kind of contextually in the big story of the Old Testament, where are we this morning in, in the book of Judges? And so on page 19, there's this chart. Yours is vertical because the book is vertical. This one, we had to kind of go horizontal. Um, but what we've seen thus far is that in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 is the era of creation. That God, by His Word, by just speaking, He creates everything. He brings into existence from nothing. Uh, the universe and all the animals and humanity and vegetation and everything upon the earth. And then in Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of humanity, and sin enters into the world. And that forces Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, which is bad enough in itself, but the even greater punishment there is out of the presence of the Lord. And now because of sin, it's impossible for humanity to rightly relate to God. And so the next big scene in the Bible is the flood. And God floods the entire earth in response to the sin of humanity, but he's merciful and gracious and preserves humanity through the family line of Noah. And then after that, at the Tower of Babel, humanity is scattered. And then the second era of the Old Testament is the era of the patriarchs. It begins in Genesis chapter 12 and continues through the end of the book of Genesis. And it begins with a man named Abraham who receives a covenant promise from God that he's going to use the seed of Abraham, a son, to make Abraham into a great nation, the Israelite people, and that as that great nation, they're going to be blessed by the Lord, they're going to have a land that they'll inherit that'll be their own, and that they're going to become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And the rest of the book of Genesis plays out in three more individuals' lives. So after Abraham is Isaac, after Isaac comes Jacob, after Jacob comes Joseph, and it's Joseph that ends up Uh, helping, God uses to move the Israelite people from the land that he's eventually going to give them one day to Egypt. And in Egypt, we have the story of the Exodus. The book of Exodus contains this era of the Old Testament, but also Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what happens next is that God displays the full extent of his power, but also of his saving mercy in rescuing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And so he leads them, uh, by he does these big plagues, he leads them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, out into the wilderness. They receive the law and start to get this understanding of exactly what it would look like to live a life that glorifies and honors and exemplifies the character of God, what it means to live in relationship with him. And so they receive the law there, and then they arrive at the promised land, the edge of the promised land for the first time. They send 12 spies into the land, and they come back out, and 10 of them say, we absolutely cannot take over that land. Yes, God has promised it to us, but the people that live there are huge, and we cannot go in there and take it. Two of them say, I think we can, but the rest of the Israelites side with the ten, and so they wander in the desert for 40 years. That's their punishment. While an entire generation of the Israelite people passes away, they come back to the edge of the promised land, and they receive the law a second time, and leadership is transferred from Moses to a man named Joshua, and they enter into the promised land, and that's the conquest era. It's the book of Joshua. And the, re- the recurring theme in the book of Joshua is that the Lord gave the Israelite people the land. They go and they fight and they're, they're faithful and obedient to do the things that God tells them to do, but He gives them the land. It's the Lord who fights for them, we're told. And then the book of Joshua ends with the death of Joshua, and we move into the next era of the Old Testament, which is what we're going to start today, and that's the era of the Judges. Whereas the book of Joshua records this great faithfulness of the Israelite people, the book of Judges begins this downward spiral of unfaithfulness that's going to continue all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And so if you are opened up to Judges chapter 2 and you just look backward at chapter 1, my Bible, which is an ESV translation, Right above verse 27 says, failure to complete the conquest. It's the heading in my Bible. Yours might say something similar. And what comes from Joshua 127 down to the end of Joshua or Judges chapter 1, excuse me, is there's a listing of various tribes of the Israelite people and the cities they failed to conquer. They left some of the Canaanite inhabitants there in the land. And so this then is what Judges chapter 2 tells us was the result of that verses 1 through 5. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacchum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you to the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall become a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place, Baqam, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. In the first five verses of Judges chapter 2, we see uh, a disobedience and a disappointment. For as faithful as the Joshua era of Israelites were, the Joshua generation of Israelites were, they were disobedient and that they didn't completely clear out the promised land. And so God reminds them, I made a covenant with you and I will never break that covenant. That's the end of Judges 2 verse 1. In fact, that should be one of the most beautiful verses in all of scripture for us. I will never break my covenant with you, says the Lord. And he really, really Means that As we read over the rest of the Old Testament here and into the New Testament, we need to keep that in mind. He's not ever going back on the promise that he made to Abraham, that Abraham's people, the son of Abraham, would become a blessing to all the nations. And he's going to fulfill that all the way to the giving of his son in Jesus Christ, which we celebrated last week at Easter. And he says, but you have broken that covenant. And that should be some of the most heartbreaking words in all of Scripture because the Lord displays Himself over and over and over again in the Bible to be so, so faithful. And yet what we see in humanity is that we are so, so not. Whereas God is not ever going to break His covenant, the story of the Old Testament is that the Israelites are not ever going to keep it. And yet He is merciful. And He's gracious to them repeatedly. And God says that, the people that they've left in the land are going to become a thorn to the Israelites and that that's going to hurt them. That's what a thorn would do. You step on a thorn or like maybe in our time it would be like a a rogue Lego on the floor in the living room (laughs) and that that is going to hurt you but that their gods, the gods of the uh, Canaanite people are going to become a snare. You set a snare when you want to capture and kill something. Those people are going to be a thorn. They're going to hurt you but it is their gods, he says, that are ultimately going to destroy you. And I'm not going to go before you any longer. I'm not going to clear out the land for you anymore. The Israelites in Joshua's time made a compromise. They decided that we're going to leave some of these people in the promised land. And there are some reasons for that that I think seem somewhat logical. I mean, maybe they're just tired of fighting. The book of Joshua records 37 uh, military engagements that the Israelite people undertook with various inhabitants of the promised land. And maybe they arrive at these you know, a handful of cities, and they just say, you know what, we're tired of fighting, so we're not going to do it anymore. Or maybe they arrived at a point where they thought to themselves, it's time to just start building what the Lord promised He was going to give us in the land that He's he's given to us, and rather than be completely faithful to what He told us to do, we're just going to start building what we think He wants us to do. So we'll leave some of these people here. Judges chapter 1 also tells us that a number of these uh, Canaanite people that they left in the land, they forced into slavery, into forced labor. So maybe the Israelites thought, well, if we leave some of them, maybe we can make financial gain. They can help us accomplish some of the things that we need to do. We can force them into slavery for us. Or maybe they're just afraid. The Canaanites were professional warriors. The Israelites are an agrarian people. They're They're shepherds and farmers. The Canaanites have chariots. So maybe they just decide, you know what? We're afraid to continue. So we'll just leave some of these people here. The bottom line is that their passivity and their negligence become the foundation of their compromise. And so Judges 2, 6 to 10 tells us this. It's actually a recap at the end of the book of Joshua. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers." And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. The people alive in Joshua's day were faithful. They made this particular compromise, but they're described as being faithful. They had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. That's verse 7, chapter 2. And they died, and almost unthinkably, verse 10 tells us that another generation comes after them who do not know the Lord who don't know the work that he's done for Israel. And so because of that, verses 11 to 15 tell us what happens to this next generation. The people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so they could no longer withstand them. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. We're told... Right before the conquest happens, that the reason God wants them to remove the inhabitants of Canaan from their land is because inevitably, what would happen if they left them there is that they would end up adopting their uh, kind of morally bankrupt practices and worshiping their false gods. And then we're told right here in Judges eleven, our Judges two eleven to fifteen, that that's exactly what happened. One generation leaves some of these people in there, and the next generation ends up worshiping their gods. And the last verse of that section, verse 15, says that they were in terrible distress. Judges 2, 16-19 gives you a foreshadowing, a preview of what the entire book is going to be. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, Who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. There's this cycle that perpetuates itself throughout the book of Judges. If you flip to page 15 in your book, it's listed there. It goes like this, the Israelites sin, and the primary sin in the book of Judges, the primary sin throughout the rest of the Old Testament is the sin of idolatry, worshiping as God something that is not, putting something above Yahweh the Lord. And so in the midst of their worshiping of one of the gods of the uh, Canaanite individuals, they end up being pressed into servitude or they're afflicted and oppressed. The Lord allows that to happen to them. And in the midst of their affliction and their oppression, they cry out in prayer. These are all S words, so we had to go with the big word, supplication. They, they cry out in prayer that the Lord would deliver them, that he would save them from whoever was oppressing them. And the Lord, in his mercy, repeatedly in the book of Judges, brings them a savior, a judge, a judge. Who pulls them out of servitude. And so, as long as that judge is alive, things go well in Israel. But as soon as that judge dies, the cycle starts back over. What you read about in the book of Judges is that at a period of time, God would raise up a judge who would save some of the Israelites from some of their oppressors some of the time. These judges were regional. They would come from a particular tribe. In fact, every time you read about a judge, it tells you which tribe they came from. And that judge would be able to save that group of Israelite people from whoever was oppressing them at the time. And the Lord would use them powerfully and in a merciful way to relieve that oppression and affliction from the Israelite people. But what you also see throughout the book of Judges is that God is not indifferent toward the sin of his people. It causes him to react. He cannot just overlook it. He can't turn a blind eye to it. He can't pretend it's not happening. There's a reaction from the Lord when his people sin. One of those reactions is that he allows judgment to come. But one of those reactions is that he's also moved to mercy on their behalf and he saves them by a particular way. What you also see in the book of Judges is that God works against the sin of His people for the sake of His will. God actually uses the actions of Israel's enemies for the sake of His own will. You read of that cycle over and over and over again, and you can't help but ask yourself, why would God continue to allow this to happen? And the answer is that God is more concerned about molding a faithful people than He is with forming a comfortable people. The same is true today. God's more concerned about the hearts of His people than He is about the ease of life for His people. And so, as a means of drawing them back to Himself, He allows this oppression to come. He allows this judgment to come, and then He mercifully saves them, and He displays His love for them, that they might return to faithfulness to Him. And yet the bottom line, if you flip to Judges 3, I just want to read two verses Judges 3, 5, and 6, we're told, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. The Israelites end up living among the Canaanite people, which was not supposed to happen. They end up marrying the Canaanite people, which in Deuteronomy, God had told them explicitly not to do. And they end up serving these Canaanite gods, which absolutely breaks the Lord's heart. What's most interesting in this early part of the book of Judges is that one generation makes a compromise and it has no impact on them. But it has devastating consequences for the next one. One generation that had been uh, miraculously brought across the Jordan River, had seen the walls of Jericho tumble, had watched the Lord give the land into their hands, makes a compromise and leaves some of those uh, Canaanite individuals in the promised land. And it has no impact on them. Why? Because they had seen the Lord do those amazing things. And so to leave some of these Canaanite people there was no temptation to them. I've seen the Lord do great things. These people can stay. I'm not going to worship their God. I don't... I don't really care about them. They can live over there in that city and they'll be totally fine. But the next generation cannot handle that. I've got a study Bible that's called the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible. And one of the notes on this section made this statement, that initial disobedience provides the soil in which further disobedience takes root. Joshua's generation did something that seemed mostly harmless left some people in the promised land. But it sets up the circumstances by which the next generation finds themselves in great distress, find themselves disobedient to the Lord, and ultimately leads to their destruction, which is the rest of the story of the Old Testament. Where I want us to camp out this morning is on this truth, this statement, that the compromises of one generation lead to the waywardness of the next. That's the predominant story of the rest of the Old Testament, that one compromise in one generation leads to generation after generation after generation of disobedience and unfaithfulness. It didn't impact the first, but it literally led to the destruction of those that came after them. The question we have to ask ourselves, that we're forced to ask ourselves, is whether or not we make those kinds of compromises today. That would set up the circumstances by which future generations would be not just unfaithful, but completely wayward from the Lord. And I thought long and hard about how many of these and how hard I wanted to press on some of what I think are common compromises that we make. And so I want to I want to walk through a couple. I want to start with technology. Every parent has to come up with the answer to the question when will I give my child a cell phone and when I do give them a cell phone how much of the world and the internet is that going to open them up to every parent has to answer the question how much cable will we put in our house and what to what degree will we allow our children to interact with technology now hear me say this off the front end I love technology but at the same time, I understand that even though I really love ESPN and my wife and I really enjoy watching the Food Network together, that there are a whole lot of other channels that come with our cable that aren't so great. And they're not a temptation to my wife and I at all. We don't watch them. We don't even, I couldn't even tell you what all comes with our cable. I know that we have the History Channel and ESPN, and ESPN2 and ESPN Classic, And I know that we have the Food Network and the Cooking Channel and HGTV because Melody likes those. But if we had a 14-year-old son that we left at home alone from time to time, would he be aware of the other channels that are present? Would he find them and that would open up to him a world of content that maybe he didn't even know existed? Would the compromise that we made though it had no impact on our own personal faith and relationship with the Lord, open him up to a world of disobedience, distress, and potentially self-destruction. Let's take another one. Sports. Sports are a wonderful thing. But it's very, very common That in our world today, everyone thinks that their child has the potential to be like the next LeBron James. And so because my child has the potential to be the next LeBron James, we're going to travel to every tournament available Even if that means we're never able to be at church on Sunday. And maybe as an adult, as the parent, you think to yourself, that has no real impact on my relationship with the Lord. I love the Lord. I can worship Him and grow in Him, even if I'm not present for church. But if we fast-forwarded 15 years and asked your child, what was really important in your home? Would they answer the question, oh, faith and worshiping the Lord? I mean, that was the foundation of who we are. Or would they say, soccer tournaments? Soccer tournaments were really important. In fact, they were the foundation of who we were as a family. Would they have the understanding, because you made a compromise as a family, that what was ultimately important was not being present and worshiping together and spending time in the evenings talking about scripture together? What was really important was another practice. What was really important was going and playing in another game or going to another tournament. And the question you would have to ask yourself is, how does that perpetuate itself generations down the road? What does that turn into? What am I communicating to my child? Let's go outside the parenting context. If you're just in a discipleship relationship and there's just a generation of people beneath you or below you or surrounding you who may or may not know the Lord, one of the things that I think we perpetuate accidentally all the time is the notion that success is the most important thing in American culture. I often tell people I'm a pastor. You know what the second or third question they ask me is? How big is the church? As if The number of bodies in seats is the defining characteristic of whether or not this church is successful. You know what no one ever asks me? How healthy is it? How are people growing? In what ways are you making disciples? No one asks that. That's a hard way to judge success. I find that I inadvertently do this when I meet people all the time or I'm getting to know you and you tell me about the things that your children do or you tell me about your job. And inevitably, in my own head, I find a way to find out how good you are or they are at that thing. We, we kind of underline that success is the most important thing in all of the world. When the reality is that success in life is based on faithfulness, not on results that you may or may not produce. We do that all the time. We make this compromise that I'll give a little bit extra of myself or my time or my money in order to be more successful rather than giving myself fully to being faithful. And does that compromise create a situation whereby the following generation struggles to be faithful? Let me tell you this. You walk into any high school or middle school in any suburban area in America and you will see the distress caused by the fact that we worship success in America. You will find 12 and 13 and 14 year olds contemplating suicide because they don't feel like they're good enough at stuff. Great distress. Ultimately, their destruction because we've made a compromise. And the compromise of one generation leads to waywardness in the next. Let me give you one more. Particularly, I, I speak this to my millennial friends. We really love our social media. It's wonderful. Facebook, Instagram, those are great things. Uh, I love them so long as they're put within the right parameters. But there's a thing that we do now, and I don't understand why my generation does this, but it's like really cool to post pictures of your alcohol. Like rather than posting a picture of just being at the Royals game, it's more fun to post a picture of the Royals game and my Boulevard beer. Or my fruity cocktail at breakfast one morning? Because everyone needs to know you had a mimosa, right? Is there anything wrong with drinking alcohol? Is it like biblically explicit that if you drink alcohol, you're living in sin? The answer is no. There are parameters around which you can consume it well. And there are parameters by which it's gone too far. But the reality is, we post our pictures of that stuff. And maybe we've got a weaker brother or sister who does struggle with the amount that they consume. And they see you, faithful follower of Jesus, three or four times in a month posting a picture of your alcohol, and they think to themselves, this must not be a big deal. And so your compromise there leads to a huge struggle for your brother or sister. If you're you're taking notes, jot down 1 Corinthians 8. The chapter of 1 Corinthians 8 is all about this idea, that Paul says, look, In our culture, there are people who struggle with the idea that meat, that food might have been sacrificed to an idol. And even though we understand that idols aren't real, they're fake, they're not God, you could sacrifice something to an idol, and because the idol's fake, the food's not going to make you unclean. If that makes your brother or sister sin, Paul says this at the end. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Never. I won't do it. We kind of bristle at that in America, that I would curb my own freedom for the spiritual good of another individual. That's hard for us because we're so individualistic. It's one of the defining characteristics of our culture. And that sneaks its way into the church. Why would I not do fill-in-the-blank thing if it doesn't do any noticeable harm to my relationship with the Lord? Well, the answer is because what if it's doing real harm to someone else in their relationship with the Lord? That should burden our hearts. It should weigh heavy on us that we as a, as a culture, as a generation, might make compromises small, subtle that make no difference to our relationship with the Lord, that end up having devastating consequences for the generations that come after us. The answer to that, the contrast to that, is intentional biblical discipleship. In fact, J- Judges 2 told us that. In Judges Judges 2.7, we hear that, One generation is faithful because they had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel, whereas in Judges 2.10, another generation rises up who's unfaithful because they did not know the work of the Lord. In addition to making this compromise in their lives, Joshua's era of the Israelite people failed to pass on the good news of God's great work on their behalf. They failed to disciple the next generation. John Piper says it this way, When the knowledge of God is preserved in a community, especially by those who have personally experienced God's power, faith is nourished and obedience flourishes. The reason we exist as a church here at Liberty Christian Fellowship is to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We exist to build disciples. To fulfill the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We exist to do that. Not only do we want to do that within the walls of our church, but we exist so that the people who come into our church would be able to build disciples outside of this church. That you as a a business person, a parent, that you as a coach or a teacher or whatever you might be would be able to build disciples in whatever context the Lord has you. That you would have a heart to see the unreached reached. And so what is discipleship? I want to give you just a concrete definition for what that means. It means that motivated by the gospel, a believer shares the truth of the gospel and shows the application of the gospel motivated by the gospel, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have seen the good work of the Lord on your behalf. We celebrated it last week. The life, death, (coughs) resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ on your behalf, that by faith in him, your sins have been forgiven. We've seen the good work Of the Lord, and that's a compelling reason to make disciples. That nothing else, not standing or reputation or some sort of financial gain, not occupation. I don't make disciples because I'm a pastor, I make disciples because I'm a Christian, because I've seen the good work of the Lord. Because of that, we share, we share the truth of the gospel. This absolutely includes sharing the story of Jesus Christ in in an evangelistic sense. But we also need to be able to articulate the truth of the rest of Scripture. That we're able to discern and share the truth of what God's Word says. That's the purpose behind the Bible initiative here. We could have said, you know what we should do? We should teach through the story of Scripture over the course of a year. People can come and they can listen to it and kind of have a a vague sense of what the Bible does. But instead we said, no, you know what we should do? We should come up with a way for people to read the story of Scripture for themselves, to find truth for themselves. And so what all should that require? Well, it requires that we help people understand, that we get them a reading plan that they feel like is tangible, that we teach alongside it so that we're doing this together together. We want to build disciples, not just people who come and get some entertainment and download some knowledge and then walk out of here. It also means that we share the application of the gospel. What does it look like for that in your life? It requires intentionality. It requires that you build some relationships that are intentional and transparent and vulnerable. My wife is in a discipleship relationship with a few ladies Uh, here in the church, they meet every once in a while. And they unpack scripture and and, uh, they really enjoy sharing truth together. But they also spend a lot of time together. So that they can see what the application of that looks like in life. I mean, there are times where my wife says, I'm meeting with uh, the ladies that I get together with regularly at 6 o'clock tonight. And I think, okay, cool, I'll see you before bed. And I'm long asleep before she gets home. Because they wanted to share truth together. They wanted to share life together. They wanted to talk about the way the gospel impacts the myriad of situations that play out in their lives. Motivated by the gospel, we share the truth of the gospel and show the application of the gospel. As a church, our longing is to engage in that process with every person who comes through our doors. But more so than that, our longing is that every person who comes through our doors would engage in that process with every person they come into contact outside of our doors. That we would build disciples who build disciples who build disciples. We would build devoted followers of Jesus Christ who look at the world around us and say, there are people in great distress, and I know the answer. It's the gospel. Our hope is not that The perpetual story of America would be that one compromise led to greater disobedience and another compromise and greater disobedience. Our prayer is that the story of America would be that faithful individuals passed on the good work that the Lord has done in their lives so that one generation's faithfulness would lead to a more faithful subsequent generation. If you're a parent, that begins in your home, and that's the most important place you engage in the discipleship process. If you're not a parent, or if you are a parent, it also extends outside of your home to those around you. And you might have one of the following common objections. These are the two most common objections to engaging in the discipleship process. Number one, I don't know enough. To which I would say, perfect, you better start learning. Be intentional. Spend time in the Word. Get yourself around people who can teach you. Don't nap through church. Pay attention to whoever's up here. I don't say that because it's me, but sometimes other people are up here and they say things better than I can. Pay attention. Learn. You've only got to be one step ahead of a person that you're discipling. Just one. You're having quiet times. They're not perfect. Discipleship opportunity. The second is this. My life isn't perfect. I can't disciple someone because my life's not perfect. Awesome, then you're qualified because it means you understand you need a savior. And the most important discipleship opportunity you ever have with someone is when you blow it and they watch you repent because then they understand that you need a savior as much today as you did the day you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel applied in life. The life of a Christian isn't a life of perfection. It's a humble reliance upon the one who did live a life of perfection. In our discipleship relationships, we hold that out. So I want to end this morning with this question. Are you, not you as a giant body of people here, you individually serving the next generation in discipleship? Or are you maybe unwittingly, unknowingly setting up the circumstances by which the next generation is disobedient in distress, and ultimately in destruction. Which one is it? If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it is your calling to disciple. It's your calling to help the world around you come to understand the good work that the Lord has done. None of us are perfect That's why discipleship begins with the motivation of the gospel, that Jesus has saved us. And then we share the truth of that, and we show what it looks like to apply that in life. Our prayer as a staff here, our prayer as a church, my prayer as your pastor, is that we would be a church, a big C church in America, around the world, that sees the distress of the generation around us and after us and says the gospel is the answer, and rather than setting up further disobedience in the future, we want to spend our lives to see faithfulness in the future. We would give of ourselves fully to going and making disciples of all nations. The great sadness in the book of Judges that we're going to start reading this week is that Joshua's generation didn't do it. And it set up the terms by which the judge's generation and every generation after them was stuck in a cycle of disobedience that ultimately leads to their destruction, but culminates, thankfully, in the coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll go from here this morning. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for your son and the chance to gather together as a church body and Lift up praises and worship to you for your merciful, gracious, loving, triumphant, glorious, saving act of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for us. Lord, my prayer is that those of us who have seen the Lord's good work on our behalf would take the message of that and share it in word, share it in action every day of our lives until you call us home. God, would you place it upon our hearts, compel us to give of ourselves fully to making disciples in our homes, making disciples of the world around us. God, would you open our eyes to the places where we're making compromises, Lord, and challenge our hearts to rather than making a compromise in that area, to be faithful there. Lord, would the result of faithful followers of Jesus Christ engaging in the process of discipleship the world over, be that subsequent generations experience greater levels of faithfulness rather than greater levels of disobedience. God, would you use us to that end, I pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Uh, We will see you next Sunday.